Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Aaron Murphy, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow for the Economics Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she is currently transitioning to the Asia Program. She is also author of Burmese Haze, U.S. Policy and Myanmar's Opening and Closing. Welcome to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Jude Blanchett of CSIS, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mike Green, the Chief Executive Officer at the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney. We're really delighted today to welcome Aaron Murphy to the podcast to discuss all things Myanmar. It's deteriorating relationship with the U.S., it's complicated and, and complex relationship with China, and its role as irritant to ASEAN. Aaron brings a real wealth of expertise to this topic, having worked on this issue in larger Asia geopolitical issues in the CIA as the director for the Indo-Pacific at the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, as the subject of her own Myanmar-focused advisory firm that she founded, and now as my colleague at CSIS, where she's the deputy director and senior fellow of the center's economics program. Erin also authored Burmese Hayes, U.S. Policy in Myanmar's Opening and Closing, which was published last year. So we're really delighted, Erin, that you could join us. Thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So first question, as always, is to ask for a, a potted biography how did you get interested in Asia? How did you get interested in Myanmar more specifically? And how have you been able to build out this really successful career as an Asia policy practitioner and, and analyst? Sure. So my interest in Asia, when I look back to 21-year-old Erin in college, I'm amazed at how strategic she was because I certainly would never make those same decisions now. And I went to Tufts University was always interested in international relations, studied abroad in Europe. I was going to go to Europe. And then I realized they were not going to hire any Americans. But where could I go that would be interesting? I loved history that had military issues, diplomatic issues, really just interesting stories. And Asia, to me, really stood out. Almost my first day of college in 1997, now I'm really aging myself here, we encountered the Asian financial crisis. And that's how I got into economics, learning about Asia and learning more about the Southeast Asian markets and China's role in helping bail out some of these countries. So Asia made a world of sense to me. I did the JET program, which was teaching English in Japan, came back to Washington. This may be, sound familiar to your co-host, went to SICE, did Japan studies and was like, I'm going to join the US government and do Japan stuff. That is not what I did at all. And I was put on a very sleepy account. And I said, you know what, you're never going to, and I'm never going to know what my chops are as a CIA analyst. I really want to try something. And they said, well, you know what, Myanmar is about to have this election is a constitutional referendum. It was April 2008 when they came to me with this and said, we know what the outcome is, but we don't know how violent it will be. And then President George W. Bush was really interested in this, as Mike can attest during his time on the NSC. So I said, sure, I'll take a look at it. It's got ethnic armed groups, narco armies, Aung San Suu Kyi, a Nobel laureate, the military, monks. It's got a whole heck of a lot of stuff here and a potential connection to North Korea. This is juicy stuff for an analyst. If you're a Myanmar citizen, it's awful. I took it uh, about two weeks later. A massive cyclone hits the country. 
and is absolutely devastating, kills at least 138,000 people with about 50,000 people missing, wiped out the Delta. And that's where I just kind of ended up staying, followed the issue closely, helped work on policy that helped open up relations between the US and Myanmar, easing sanctions. And then that's when I started my own business. But I have to say my my career was never a straight path. Again, I was going to be a Japan Alliance person working on, I don't know, ships out of Yokosuka. And instead, I end up in a ruby mine in Myanmar trying to figure out how can we have, you know, high quality, high standards of labor, safe mine to market in Myanmar, and who knows, but there was always a developmental component to that as well. And that's what really got me interested in the Development Finance Corporation using mobilizing private sector capital to try to make developmental impact. And that's how I ended up on that route. So, But it all goes back to Myanmar and haunts me to this day still. Myanmar is one of these countries where when you're out in the region having discussions with ASEAN members, when you're in China, it is an issue that constantly comes up because of how problematic it is. It tends to fall off the strategic radar here in Washington, D.C., but it is of critical importance to the region. I, I wonder if you could just start by giving listeners a bit of a level set on what is the state of affairs for Myanmar now in 2023? But maybe rewind back to the period around the coup. What were some of the fissures and tensions that ultimately produced the coup? And, and how has the regime governed since 2021? Sure. I, you know, I always think of how each U.S. president, when they give the State of the Union, they always say the union is strong. And when, you, when you're looking at Myanmar, the union is in a dire situation right now, and it has been for a long time. You know, this all kind of goes back to a very tumultuous political history, fractiousness, and national reconciliation, which are really the issues that define this country and define its problems. Nay Win, who was a military leader, for decades, uh, took power first in a coup in 1958 from a democratically elected government, gave back power after two years. And part of the reason why he took power in the first place is because, again, this fractiousness among the political parties that they were dealing with multiple insurgencies, whether it was ideological, ethnic-based, Myanmar is incredibly ethnically diverse, and anti-government forces that were fighting the government at the time all over the country. This country has been engulfed in a civil war for decades, um, and they weren't making any decisions. So Nguyen was frustrated by that, said, you know, we're going to bring a peace, bring some stability, and then you're allowed to govern again. Well, he got a taste of power in 1962, took power for good, and it's been successive military regimes up until 2010, when there was a stage-managed election where the former junta was called the State Peace and Development Council. That was a rebrand from when they were the State Law and Order Restoration Council, everyone's favorite acronym, SLORC. Now they're SAC. So they, they're really just, you know, improving. But SPDC was a high point in their acronyms. But they took off their uniforms, except for the top two generals in the SPDC, ran for office, shockingly won. But there was some interesting space that was built in that election that really made U.S. policymakers and others that had been following the issue think, because they were pro-democracy activists that were allowed to run, and they won their seats. And so these folks that we had supported over decades, do we completely abandon them, call the election a sham, or do we try to find in some way to help them? 
I think one of the more surprising things is the elected president or selected president, Thane Sane, who was, I'd say, anywhere from number three to number five in the junta, depending on the day and the rankings, took on a level of reforms that really changed how Myanmar was going to develop, that parliament wasn't a rubber stamping institution. I mean, there was still 25% of the seats that were allocated to the military appointed by the commander in chief of the military, Min Aung Lang, who's currently the leader, the new junta leader. But these changes were allowed to develop. And five years later, he had another election. Uh, This time, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate, the national leader uh, for the pro-democracy movement, her party, the National League for Democracy, won. It was a huge celebration. It was really a sense that the country is moving in a new direction. They were allowed to take their seats and govern. But then come the 2020 election, you start hearing, which was in November 2020, a very tumultuous month, um, but you start hearing rattlings of electoral fraud and electioneering, rigged elections, sounds familiar. And there were a lot of echoes of what was happening here in, in the United States that was happening in Myanmar. And in January, that rhetoric hit a fever pitch. And in February of 2021, uh, February 1st, the military took power, arrested all of the elected leaders, put Aung San Suu Kyi back under house arrest. House, I use liberally here. She was in the capital of Naypyida and put in basically a government guest house. And some of the ministers and central bank governors were thrown in jail including her foreign advisor, Sean Trunell, who is from Australia. And since then, I mean, it was compounded by the fact that you had COVID and a horrible medical system. And that was due to years of mismanagement by the military. No one who's too happy to send them vaccines or really help them because it was all going to go to the military, not the people itself. So you had the pandemic, but then you have a military that just doesn't understand economics and governance, just a basic governance, and that people didn't vote for the NLD because they love democracy. It was a vote against the military, and they just can't understand why no one likes them. So since the coup, they have arrested more than 10,000 people. I'm, I'm really bad at remembering numbers and facts and figures, but I highly recommend people look at the Association for Political Prisoners in Burma. Thousands have been killed. Thousands have been arrested. If you are a Burma watcher or have been in Burma, I'm sure that you know someone who has been arrested or have had to flee the violence. Its economy is back in the dumps. Inflation is high. Germany suspended a critical piece that's part of their mint to make their own currency. So that's a problem. Their currency is completely devalued. They can't get goods in. Sanctions have been piled on. It's a real state of despair. And I think what is even more heartbreaking is that there is a generation of people who had only new freedoms that could imagine a future. And what kind of future can you imagine now? You look to Myanmar's north, it has this very powerful, autocratic, influential neighbor in China. There was some early fleeting hope after the coup in 2021 that China was going to play some sort of productive role for the world community. And yet again, like we've seen with the war in Ukraine, China is completely uninterested in living up to any of the stated principles it has about stability, freedom, order. The relationship between Myanmar and China is deep, complicated, transcends 
uh, I think, simple descriptions of it. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could give us a sense, having spent a lot of time on the ground in Myanmar, we tend to think of China as having either purely economic relationship through state-owned actors or the sort of uh, government-to-government relationship. But Myanmar is interesting and different because China has a unique set of concerns with Myanmar that it doesn't have with a lot of other its formal bilateral partners, and that is widespread, very deeply entrenched networks of criminal, narco, cyber syndicates. There are armed groups along the border where the violence spilling over into China. Can you give us a just a picture of what this relationship looks like between the two? And what are the main issues of contention? I want to ask a question about other strategic concerns in the energy space. But for now, just thinking about the immediate concerns Beijing has with the relationship, can you give us a sense of what are these? How bad are the problems? They're bad. And the relationship is complex. It's it's very complex. I, I mean, that's a great way to state it. I mean, you could break it down into pieces. But besides the fact that they've been neighbors since they've been countries or territories, it goes way back. So there's a lot of cultural and familial ties, especially along the border. So, I mean, there are some places in Myanmar where they only speak whatever the dialect is of Western China and vice versa. And so there are those strong cultural ties. But no one in Myanmar loves China. And no one thinks, wow, it's so great that we can have this economic relationship with China on its most basic, the most basic look at the economic relationship. Myanmar fits and checks a lot of boxes for China in that it has an abundance of natural resources, gives it access to the Bay of Bengal. It's incredibly strategic. Myanmar it connects South and Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, Northeast Asia. It was once a hub for KLM and Pan Am. I can't even imagine that these days. But so you have that economic side of things. And it, certainly there, there's been trade relationships and economic relationships than before America was a country. So, I mean, this goes way, way, way back. But there's also a sense of being used and that, you know, there were a lot of complaints. And one of the first things that the Thane Sang government asked was, how do we build our own FDA or USDA? Because we're getting all these products that are coming in and we know they're bad. Like people use shampoo when their hair falls out. How can we trust that they're drugs are safe. So there are just some of the basic relationships there as well. And I think if you talk to government officials or just anybody in Myanmar, it's also a question of who are you dealing with? Are you dealing with Beijing? Or are you dealing with Yunnan? And those are two very different governments. <laughs> Beijing doesn't always necessarily know what Yunnan is doing. And that has been a problem, even a problem that they have admitted. To go back, one of the largest insurgencies in Burma was the Burma Communist Party, which was supported by Mao. That support fell apart around 1988, 1989, and those groups broke up and created the narco armies with the super labs that we see today. So the various Shan groups, ethnic Shan groups, United Wa State Army, the Kokong, ethnic Kokong groups, and they're all along the border there. But they also own vast amounts of territory, can manufacture their own weapons. And as I mentioned, they have super labs. That relationship is incredibly complicated. You can go on YouTube and see the United Wa State Army's military parades, which are incredibly professional and terrifying, and that there's questions of how much support they're getting from the PLA. Is it officially sanctioned PLA support? According to Beijing, it is not. 
And then that's where a big question mark comes for Yunnan. And I think the, the Myanmar side can sort of parse out that it's not coming from Beijing, but it still presents a problem. It's an uneasy truce, an uneasy peace. I mean, certainly the military gets kickbacks from the drug trade and that helps them, but you also don't want a 20 to 40,000 strong narco army in your country that answers to no one. That's an issue. They've gotten weapons. They've gotten, I mean, if you talk to some folks who are like deep in the conspiracies, which is like Myanmar for you, they have scuds, they have planes, and they got it from China. So there is a big question around how that is. The illicit networks, wild, especially in the Kokong area. There's been reports by US Institute for Peace that has looked at the practical digital annexation of parts of Myanmar, of Shan State, which borders China by Chinese entities. But it's a question, again, is this Yunnan? Is this Beijing? Beijing claims it knows nothing about it, but there was one new e-town that was going to offer e-citizenship, have its own cryptocurrency, was basically going to be casinos and a variety of trade, which is wildlife, people probably, and drugs. And Myanmar, of course, doesn't want it. And so this is a joint shared issue with China and the Myanmar, I guess you can say military, since they're in charge. So that's a problem. But also the fighting between armed ethnic groups and the Myanmar military, it spills over the border into China. And if there's anything that China loves, it's stability, and they're not having it there. And no one loves having these super labs where most of the drugs that they're producing are not just going into the Golden Triangle of Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar, but well into China and even going as far as Australia. This is much worse problem for Northeast and Southeast Asia than the heroin problem was before, where you could find Wa heroin in Northeast Washington. It's a major problem for China. So it's a very complex relationship. There's a lot of history there, a lot of bitter history. And I don't think that the Myanmar military, including Minang Lang, really likes relying on China for diplomatic protection or economic protection, but they really have no choice. But you see them moving towards Russia quite a bit. If I can ask a two-parter, one is just a, a quick follow-up to what you were just saying, which is why does Beijing have so little leverage or why is Beijing unwilling to ratchet up the pressure? Because as you said, the nominal influence Beijing could exert over Myanmar could be significant. It's still increasing economic engagement in Myanmar. They've got an oil pipeline uh, that where they're transporting Russian oil, you know, through Myanmar into China. They have lots of economic leverage. Chin Gong, before he was defenestrated and is, I have no idea where, but when he was foreign minister in May, he was out in Myanmar. And it was one of the few times you see MFA statements that are stern and angry that aren't directed towards the United States or US allies basically saying to Myanmar, get your act together. But it was a short-term statement, and, and that was it. And that seems to be the extent of Chinese leverage here. So what is with the inability of China to really turn the screws on Myanmar and force action at the border to stop this violence spillover? Not much. Honestly, Myanmar has a lot of the leverage here, and they don't necessarily trust China to come in in their best interest. China has tried to insert itself in the peace process and they're not necessarily an honest broker. Either the armed ethnic groups don't trust them or the Myanmar military doesn't trust them. And the other thing is that China wants to get some of its projects that were shelved during the Thane Sane and Aung San Suu Kyi administrations up and running again. 
the Mietzon Dam in Kachin State, which was this mega hydropower project that was larger than the Three Gorges Dam, is still a question as to whether or not that's going to happen. So Myanmar has a lot of the leverage here. You know, I say this in just as an observation, but like the beautiful thing about Myanmar, you just don't care what anybody thinks. Well, this military does not care. Min Aung Lang like does not give two hoots about like what China is going to come with them. And they're willing to like, for example, during Cyclone Nargis, they're like, oh, the people will survive. They don't need your stupid UN energy biscuits. They can eat frogs and drink rainwater. I'm like, God, how callous. But this is their attitude. They've survived this long as being a pariah. They're going to do just fine. With friends like Belarus, North Korea, and Russia, we'll do just fine. It's a huge frustration for China as well. So in a way, I just like, haha, looks like we're all getting screwed by Myanmar because like no one has any leverage. Even Cambodia was getting super frustrated with them. And it's it's just the hot potato everyone hates. Just very, very quickly, only because you raised Russia, there has been some discussion on this new emerging small-scale strategic triangle between China, Russia, and Myanmar. Myanmar uses Russian uh, aircraft to strafe citizens. As we just mentioned, it is basically China is using Myanmar as a conduit to move Russian oil from off-sea onshore through Myanmar into Yunnan. Is that just the convergence of Russia and China coincidentally, or do you see any triangular strategic partnership that could take form between those three powers? I think it's more coincidental because as you look at the strengthening of the Russian relationship, I think it's once again on Min Aung Lang's part to make sure that his portfolio of friends is diversified and not just in the Chinese, on the Chinese side of things. Myanmar has enjoyed a relatively good relationship with Russia for a long time. They send thousands of students to universities there every year to what impact that is remains to be seen. Russia was willing to step up and address Myanmar's nuclear ambitions. Now you can see if it's nefarious or not, but giving them a 10 or 20 megawatt research reactor, which everyone was concerned it could be used for something else. They provided them with, with aircraft. They're providing them with weapons. And now Myanmar is providing them with hard currency and cash, which they so desperately need. And so it's a matter of convenience and it's become Putin can roll out the red carpet and Ming Alang's going to going to just eat it up. One of my questions was, how would China feel about having Russia right at its doorstep? And I can't imagine, I'm not the China expert, so you know, I, I look to you, Jude, on that, but they've always seen Myanmar as its place. The, the talk about the big brother, little brother relationship, even though Myanmar hates that, but that this is their territory. I mean, they were so upset when the former ambassador, Derek Mitchell, will travel to Kachin State to talk about the peace process and whatnot and say, and then he would get lectured by his Chinese counterpart saying that that place is none of your business. When in fact, on embassy grounds, we have a bronze statue with a U.S. soldier and a Kachin ranger because we fought together with them during World War II. So our history goes back quite a bit too. So I think it's more of a coincidence. And I think a triangulation may appear on paper, but I would expect that to be an incredibly tense relationship, uh, one that Minang Lang would probably win the most out of. I want to turn to our friends and allies a little bit, since you're a once a Japan hand, always a Japan hand. As you'd know, for most of our history on the Myanmar problem, particularly since 88, Japan was not very helpful. 
Yeah. <laughs> and there's a unique history between Japan and Burma. The, the Burmese army that the Japanese trained actually fought against the British and sometimes us in World mm-hmm. War II and the Burma harp and all the romance about it in Japan. But also the Burmese, I remember the Burmese ambassador when I was in the White House, knowing I was a Japan hand, came and gave me a picture book of a history of, of Burmese army uniforms. And they were all Japanese. He said, look, they're just like the Imperial Japanese Army, as if that would sort of <laughs> reassure me. <laughs> That's not me. really encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> but there is an affinity. There is a sort of romanticized history. And in the overall frame of U.S.-Japan relations, you know, Burma was always, and we called it Burma then, was always the area where the Japanese side would say to us, we're not with you. You know, it was sort of their, their area of independence. I wonder if that's changing because the geopolitics are changing and Japan's changing. I mean, Abe's grand strategy is more about aligning with maritime powers, countering China, and the Chinese influence is massive. Do you detect changes in Japan's approach or India, which also used to lecture me about our lack of Curzonian foreign policy realism and stuff? India's got to be terribly worried, too. Is the It's not just the mess in Myanmar. It's the way Russia and China are exploiting it. Do you detect in your work some, some opportunities there to, if not with China, knit up more with Japan, India, other players we've not worked well with in the past? You know, I think I'll I'll take the easier one first. I think there's always aspiration on behalf of India, but they've rarely shown up. And I say that because there are multiple locations for strategic ports in Myanmar. And I go back and forth on Burma, Myanmar as well. In fact, I got a lecture from Aung San Suu Kyi saying that no one knows how to pronounce Myanmar, so we should probably just call it Burma. And she's right on that aspect. But India had the opportunity of, in Rakhine State, of developing a port, and they just never showed up. They never did. I mean, they were basically like, here you go. You know, there was a hope that maybe we could try to leverage Japan's relationships and maybe India's relationships that if we can't be there, then maybe they can send some messages for us. But I think India has remained relatively aspirational, but they're still doing mill to mill ties, which is not necessarily helpful. They haven't stopped training. Economic investments aren't necessarily very high. There's more trade relations, but it's mostly because Burma has a project products that India is looking for, whether it's beans and pulses and grains. But India just hasn't stepped up on the infrastructure front. And you would think they would, especially because it is a strategic area. But, you know, then you look at U.S. statements and allied statements, uh, I guess more in this case in Australia, the EU, and how, you know, we're demonizing Myanmar for good reason at every possible step. So there's a possibility that, well, if India goes in, are we going to get really upset? How can we explain India is our strong partner in the quad and elsewhere, but you know we're going to let them go in, into Myanmar because there's a strategic reason behind it. Japan, like you say, I mean, it is very romanticized. And that is one of the few countries in the region that doesn't hate Japan for its conduct in World War II. I mean, if you talk to some of the ethnic groups, especially the Kren, I think they would say differently, but that they are beloved, that they brought investment. And I think there's still that strategic consideration. I mean, it, it certainly fit within the Abenomics idea, part of the quivers of going into this country. It was countering China. It was expanding Japanese investment. But I think when I talk to Japanese agencies and companies, it's more there's not really a good business case to be in Myanmar anymore. It's completely unstable. 
there's really no hope in the short, possibly medium term that this is going to change. This government is full, and this is my term, full of dunderheads that really don't know how like business works. And, you know, you're going to start seeing some of the wacky projects that we saw from the SBDC, like planting the Jatropha plants because they read this Goldman Sachs essay once that this was a great source of energy. So you're going to see stuff like that. So it's just not a good environment for investment. But then you hear things out of Sasakoa, which says, well, after the election, uh, whenever they hold the election, it's now been postponed again. Um, everything's going to be fine. We should accept what it is and move on. And that's unhelpful. And I think that there is still a strong voice in that community, especially from certain networks that have really supported the Japan Inc. approach in. But I think businesses are pushing back. And I think the government kind of sees what the issue there is. It's China's not going to have the easiest way in there as well, but there should be concerns about Russia and China. But what are you going to be bidding on? Projects that are going to be a disaster. So it's, it's the business case is sort of making that decision, I think, both for mostly for Japan, less so India. I was in Myanmar, as we were calling it at the time, last uh, about a decade ago. We saw U Tensen and, and Ansung Suchi and Mitsubishi and Sochi's and the Japanese companies were everywhere. There was a real mm-hmm. window of excitement and opportunity. But I agree with you. I think that window is largely closed. Yeah. And India was interesting. I on that trip, I asked NGOs, I asked the USDA, the, you know, the military's political party, what external players do you look to? They did not say Japan that much, except for economics, they like Japan. They said Korea, because Korea had a peaceful democratic transition, the military is respected, and they grew economically. That was kind of promising. Very few pointed to India. There was just much less of a sense that India was influential in in politics or the sense of the future of the country. And I I think we may have a, a little bit of a opportunity to at least knit together our approaches with Japan, India, Korea, not on our values per se, but just basically on countering China's elite capture, mm-hmm. which I wanted to ask you about because the 11 insurgencies that are ongoing, 12 depends on the track, day. Yeah, I think it's 11 or 12 that were officially being tracked. Many of them are stuck, I think, because the resolution of the insurgency would require sharing of resources. Yep. Um, Some of them, it's the drugs and the drug lords and that, but some of it's resources. Who owns them? When I was looking into this, behind a lot of those resource grabs and elite capture were former PLA. To me, it sounded like this is not meant as moral equivalency, but it sounded like filibustering in the 1830s and 40s when former U.S. politicians and generals would go down to Central America like Walker and create their little fiefdoms and exploit the fruit trade and all the rest of it. It felt like that, like not officially sanctioned, but certainly tolerated. Yeah. And so the geopolitics and the domestic stuff are intertwined. You're not going to solve these insurgencies if China's permitting that. Mm-hmm. So is there a way is, you know, back to Jews original line of discussion, is there a way to sort of get China to make some choices? You mentioned Yunnan is different from Beijing on this, which is true. The Kokong, what, 50,000 of them fled across the border and had to be disarmed and sent back by the PLA and People's Armed Police. There's drugs, there's trafficking. There should be some common cause. Maybe if we align with other countries and push back. I don't know. Is Do you see a way we can get some leverage or purchase with China or, or are the just geopolitics going to just make this too hard? Yeah, I think that there is a conversation to be had with China, but it can't be with the United States. 
the bilateral tensions between us are so great that even though we have shared concerns, we just like climate change. We can't even talk about that. And we'll have to see where, where maybe Gina Raimondo has made a major breakthrough this week. And that is a, a very sensitive issue, even for China, the U.S. relationship with Myanmar. There was a whole existential question of who lost Myanmar to the United States. And I think that they're also not excited in the same way that you talk about the Korean Peninsula of having potentially a burgeoning democracy right next door. But perhaps that, that this is a conversation best had with Vietnam or Singapore or other countries that are affected by the drug trade. And there's certainly that that can speak more to the peace process. I mean, the Indonesians are always ready to put their hand up and talk about peace. I mean, I think they tried to solve Middle East peace. So, I mean, good on them. But where you can have a better conversation with China and also Eastern Europe is an interesting example as well. After the Soviet Union breakup that you had a lot of people go back and try to reclaim land that had been taken, and try to reclaim resources that had been taken. And there was a lot of issues around there. But there's some discussions that I think can happen, but it can't be led by us. But one thing that we tried to do, and this is what makes me sad, and I think every project that I ever worked on has now been blown to smithereens and working in Myanmar, is on the ruby trade issue, where we were talking about beneficial ownership. And the concept of beneficial ownership and why this was such a problem. And during this trip, I went to one of the Gem Trades consortium, I forget what it was called, symposium, something like that, which was wild. I mean, people carrying bags of cash, millions and millions and millions of euros, because you couldn't use dollars, which had to be clean and crisp. So I'm just imagining people like ironing them in their hotel rooms. But there would be military generals there, but there were Mr. Whoever, but they weren't necessarily the owner either. They were answering to someone else. And it's very unclear who owns what. And that includes the armed ethnic groups like United Wall State Army. They have many concessions that happened during the first round of peace negotiations. So that that is something that's going to have to be discussed. But another thing that should concern China is if there is political instability ongoing. And if Myanmar becomes a failed state, China's economic difficulties are going to directly impact Myanmar. One of their biggest moneymakers is jade, at least for the military. So in some ways, we can celebrate the fact that maybe people aren't going to be buying jade, and that really cuts off some of the junta's coffers. But in some of the other areas where people have jobs or make money on trade, it's going to dry up. And then where do people go? They're probably going to go to China and not India. So that that's another issue, I think, for them that can be discussed, maybe not with every member of ASEAN, since they're not all very helpful. But I think it's something that can be discussed, at least. So that's interesting. So the, the, the room for maneuver diplomatically is it sounds like is more around issue sets like trafficking or ceasefires or maybe not ceasefires, but trafficking or other transnational problems. But it's not a U.S.-China frame. It's, it's got to be someone else sort of pulling together states and we may be one of them it's such a change you know when when we were in government china actually brokered discussions between the administration and napadaw and including with me when i was in the nsc which didn't happen because it was with the intel chief who got inconveniently purged beforehand but china was willing (laughs) china saw beijing saw enough common interest on some of these transnational challenges and the danger of a failed state they were willing to broker diplomatic uh, leverage for the u.s or access for the u.s with parts of the Hunter, we, we, we weren't talking to. So t- times have changed. Yeah, the geopolitics, it's such a 
bloody mess because it's it's very similar to North Korea. These states that define the international system love geopolitical competition. It gives them so much room to cause trouble without consequences. One of the things about this problem that is vexing geopolitically is the impact on ASEAN. I mean, for decades and decades, the US, Europe, others, Japan looked at ASEAN flawed as it is, as a little bit of a, of a cheap way to sort of sanitize problems in Southeast Asia. That kind of broke in 2016, of course, with the tribunal decision, which Beijing defied and it broke ASEAN consent. So it's imperfect. But how do you look at this problem that's going on in Myanmar in terms of its impact on ASEAN as a somewhat functioning unit in international affairs that helps to sort of neutralize great power competition? I, I was quite worried for a while that it basically was hamstringing ASEAN because they were so paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. But what do you think? Maybe they're just learning to move on and just ignore, <laughs> I mean, make some gestures, but ignore this problem like they do a lot of other problems and continue to yeah. try to keep ASEAN centrality? Or is this breaking ASEAN centrality and ASEAN's role? It's not even a straw that's breaking a camel's back. I mean, it is like a two by four. And I think it just doesn't, ex- it's not that it's exposing the weaknesses of ASEAN. Those are well known both to ASEAN members and, and elsewhere. But, you know, it's amazing to think that I think ASEAN really peaked in 2015. You had, you know, amazing diplomats across the region. You had Marty Natalagawa, you had Sarin Pitswan, you had like really strong leaders who were charismatic and able to really move across borders and leaders as well. I mean, talking about an ASEAN economic community, like based on the EU. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I think this could happen. But now I'm like, oh, my God, probably not. Um, I think ASEAN has been incredibly challenged over the last six, seven years. Thailand is absolutely not helpful. We can't say that ASEAN is like full of democracies, but they're not even stable. Malaysia has gone through its own issues. Indonesia, I think we hold our breath with every election. It's just like the further away we get from 1999, I think the safer we feel that Indonesia's democracy has really taken hold. But as we can see, and as we've experienced ourselves, democracy is an incredibly fragile thing. And it is so in Indonesia as well. Laos is Laos. Vietnam is stable, is growing. The Philippines, I don't know. That's a roller coaster. And I'm not mentioning all the ASEAN countries, but I think if you talk to Singapore, they're like, are we it? What are we going to do here? So I think that there needs to be kind of a, a meeting of the minds is what are we doing? Um, we have requirements for membership, but we don't have requirements for kicking people out. And I think that that was a real question around Myanmar because, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Cambodia was incredibly frustrated with Myanmar. And if you frustrate Hun Sen, that does not bode well. Indonesia was like, this is a mess. And I think it's just really frustrating. And it's not necessarily ASEAN's fault because Myanmar is completely intransigent. These Minang Lang is just either very full of himself or just does not care. What do you do with a country that just doesn't care, that doesn't have any leverage? I mean, even if they kick them out of ASEAN, would it have any impact? So I think that there's a lot of international organizations and groupings that really need to kind of have a meeting of the mind to think, are we having the effect that we have? I mean, I think this is happening. Like, you know, does Bretton Woods still matter? The pillars that we created? What the hell is the UN doing? What is the WTO? And I think ASEAN, like these, all things need to develop. But I think that ASEAN is an incredibly challenging spot. They've had a series of weak leaders 
uh, at difficult times and, you know, are really going to have to think we're great at having meetings about meetings, but maybe we should be thinking about what we have to do here and where our direction is. I think it's consensus is, is not really happening right now. So last one for me, a bit of a prediction round. Predictions about Burma have often been very wrong. You, I'm sure you've heard Joe Yoon's line about the World Bank report in 1954, where they predicted that in a generation, Korea would be the poorest country in Asia and Myanmar or Burma <laughs> would be the richest. So, but things happen. Agency matters. I mean, my view is U Tencent as an individual pushed or pulled the country in a better direction. A lot of it, I think, was his individual outlook, his wife in particular, who was not corrupt. That matters. Right. Yes. But so who knows? I mean, the Petraeus line, how does this end? Do you see possibilities somewhere down the road? And I'm talking like not next year. This is we're stuck. I'm talking about when Jude and I are replaced by AI algorithms for this podcast. Which <laughs> and is, me know, as two well. Years. Yeah. <laughs> two years. Do you see a return to the path of Tencent started towards democratization, potentially failed state, Chinese client state? What or, or, or even if you don't want to predict, what are the implications of some of these scenarios for the U.S. and the rest of the region? So I don't see a client state of China for a lot of the reasons why I mentioned is it's that pride that runs deep throughout the country and I think would really bother them. They may inadvertently become a Russian proxy state, but I think China will continue and will always be a very tense relationship and complex. Failed state, Myanmar's not Syria. There's a lot of parallels there. I mean, it's amazing to me, and Dave Matheson, who is a human rights person and who is is on the border and a very scathing critic of some <laughs> Myanmar books. Thankfully, he was very generous with mine. I was very terrified, but you should read his, his reviews of Amaryllis Fox's book. That was fantastic. But why isn't Myanmar taught in conflict classes that this is a country that's had insurgencies, coin operations? I mean, speaking of Petraeus, this would have been... And he's worked on this quite a bit as well. This is really a template for folks to study ongoing decades worth of conflicts, the world's longest running insurgency beats the FARC by decades, that there's a lot of things that really speak to a potentially failed state. There's calls for independence and autonomy. That fractiousness combined with this issue of national reconciliation does not make a happy future. But at the same time, this is a country that's managed to kind of bumble along that I think are able to have conversations with a bigger tent where they didn't have that before, where there's even more conversations about what do we do with the Rohingya, that they are part of national reconciliation, which is a huge step forward. Just celebrating, I think, celebrating, I shouldn't say that, commemorating the violence, the six-year anniversary of, of the purge, I guess you could call it, that understanding that the NLD is not the end-all, be-all, that we need to take into account different voices. Talking about federalism, which is no longer a dirty word, but it's going to be hard. And you need the right people to be in place to help once the military passes from the scene, either by force or whatnot. So I don't think it will be a failed state. I think it's going to be a complete mess. But unfortunately, these guys are like the MacGyvers of the world. They can make anything work. And Again, I think having that 10-year window of what opportunity looks like, I mean, there are people who have been fighting for democracy since the 60s, and that spirit never dies. And, you know, it is our responsibility to not forget Myanmar as well. So when the time comes, we're ready to help.
so I don't think it'll be a failed state, but I don't, uh, like, I don't think that's going to be for a while. And I think it's, it's just going to be a really rough patch. It's going to be work in progress for a long time. There's a real danger for policymakers, as, you, as I'm sure you've recognized, that when you've got a problem as intractable as Burma or North Korea, they take it off their strategic map. <laughs> There's not something you can do. They, they, they just don't, they, they don't do PCs, DCs. They don't have best estimates from the intelligence community. They take it off the map. That's really dangerous. I agree. Because history shows us, and what you've described for us in this podcast, is how consequential the country's future is for the biggest geopolitical problem we faced, you know, mm-hmm. in many, many decades. So thanks, Aaron. We'll have you back and see if it's gotten better. But I have a feeling we're in for a tough <laughs> I do. We're going to have to find something uplifting to talk about. I don't know about Myanmar. I mean, there's plenty, but uh, it's pretty sad right now. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.